ever since the creation of the State of Israel and afterwards, when the West Bank uh, was occupied, the question is whether this territory is Israel proper or not. This is an opportunity for Israel to finish the unfinished. The Holy Land is hurtling towards a deadline that could reshape the contours of Israel and Palestine. July 1st, that's when the Israeli government plans to begin steps to annex parts of the occupied West Bank. For most of the last year, annexation has been a campaign promise in Israeli elections, and many people thought it wouldn't go beyond that. After all, it's been brought up many times over the years, even though annexation is illegal under international law. But now, it seems like a new reality could be approaching. Though no one seems entirely sure if this annexation is going to happen or what it might entail. Some or all of the major illegal settlement blocks. Large parts of the Jordan Valley. 15 so-called enclave settlements. The proposal brought to the Israeli parliament might be just a symbolic gesture, or it could be up to 30% of the West Bank. That's in line with the U.S.'s Middle East plan. It was outlined by President Trump, supported by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and rejected by the Palestinian leadership, along with the people. We are warning the Netanyahu government from the consequences of this annexation. We're saying that it will ignite the whole region and it will fuel the misery, the suffering and the oppression of the Palestinian people. There's been international condemnation as well, from EU and US legislators, from the Arab League and from the UN. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called on Israel to abandon the plan. But the U.S. and Israel are still discussing how exactly to implement it. With over 400,000 settlers living illegally in the West Bank, there are many possibilities and unanswered questions when it comes to annexation. But for Palestinians and Israelis, what matters is how much is actually going to change. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking today with Rania Zabane, Al Jazeera's producer in the occupied West Bank, and with Gershom Gorenberg, a historian and author based in Israel. I started by asking Gershom the million-dollar question. There are a lot of rumors, a lot of possibilities when it comes to Israel annexing parts of the West Bank. But is this a huge change from what we see now? Look, there's two spins that you will see in all the reports on this. One of them is it doesn't make any difference at all because Israel is already ruling the territory. And there are those who say this is an immense change because it's formal annexation. It's closing off possibilities to a two-state outcome. It's creating a situation where Palestinians live inside the state of Israel without the rights of citizens. That's huge. And what I would say is each of those spins is half correct Mm. and therefore half incorrect. Gershom says what could be called creeping annexation has taken place since Israel occupied the West Bank in the 1967 war. All those settlers live there, 
they are ultimately subject to Israeli law, while the Palestinians are essentially disenfranchised by the Israeli state that occupies their territory. On the other hand, annexation makes that formal, makes it politically much more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult to give up territory and agree to a viable two-state agreement. And it formally creates a situation where Palestinians may be living under Israeli rule without enjoying the rights of citizens. A two-tier legal system within the state of Israel, not in an external area that's under Israeli military occupation. And that's a really big deal. That's all the general idea. But there's one specific way in which annexation could impact people's lives. And that has to do with the Hague Convention, which Israeli courts do recognize. It restricts the actions an occupying power can take. But those don't apply to a government acting within its own territory. You know, inside of the United States, for instance, a government can say, we're exercising eminent domain, we're taking land from citizens in order to do some sort of public project. Once that territory is part of Israel, it may be legally easier for the Israeli government to expropriate land directly for Israeli purposes. That's one possible consequence. The reason that I'm hedging this is there is so little clear about what the plan for annexation is that I want to be very, very careful in making any kind of forecast about what the actual situation will be. And we want to keep you away from forecasts, too, because who knows? So along those lines, I want to talk broadly about the areas that people who are observing this closely say could be included in an annexation. So the Jordan Valley. The area running along the Jordan River bordering Jordan is fertile areas home to Israeli settlements, Palestinian villages and many farms. Israelis say they cannot give up on the Jordan Valley for strategic reasons. Palestinians say there cannot be a Palestinian state without the Jordan Valley. Talk to me about the Jordan Valley. The idea of annexing that territory from the point of view of people who advocate it, is that Israel would be controlling the land along the border with Jordan and would have that territory as essentially a security buffer between it and the Arab countries to the east. And ever since the war in 1967, there have been many, many voices in Israel that have said that for security purposes, Israel needs to retain security control of this. Like everything else having to do with policy on the West Bank, that's a matter of debate, not just between Israel and the outside world, but within Israel itself. For Palestinians, the Jordan Valley is crucial agricultural land. Much of the food for the West Bank is grown there. But it's also one of the prime possibilities for annexation. And property prices have soared accordingly. But as Gershom said, like the rest of the West Bank, it has people too. Here I'll tell a tiny historical incident. Right after the war in 1967, when Israel occupied the West Bank, there were marathon discussions within the Israeli leadership of what Israeli policy should be. And the prime minister at the time, Levi Eshkol, said on a number of occasions, with the war, we got a wonderful dowry. The problem is that with the dowry comes the bride. Hmm. 
which is to say, oh, it would be great if we could have this land, but there's people living there, and that's a problem for us, because it means that if we annex it and give everybody citizenship, then we'll have a binational state, not a Jewish majority state. And the idea of annexing pieces of land carefully delineated to minimize the number of Palestinians living there is a continuation of efforts to square this circle that go all the way back to literally to the week after the war in June 1967. We wanted to hear about the people living on this land who might be facing annexation. It's hard to estimate exactly how many people could be affected, somewhere between 10,000 and 60,000. So we asked Al Jazeera's producer, Rania Zabana, to tell us about them. Everywhere you turn your head, there's a story in the Jordan Valley. Everywhere you turn your head. Most of us breed animals and grow wheat and barley. We use rainwater instead of irrigation. They arrested some shepherds and sent them before military tribunals. When this failed, they started shooting our sheep from helicopters and military vehicles. Those that survived scattered. When that failed too, they began destroying our homes. As things stand, they're already not able to build in most of the area. Those people don't have lines of electricity connecting them to the grid, whereby settlements nearby enjoy all those facilities. We've met people who have had to be evicted from their homes temporarily because of, under the pretext rather, of Israeli military drills. And those people have to leave their humble shacks, sometimes at the dead of the night, in the cold winter or in hot summer for days simply because the Israelis use the land there for military drills and settlers in nearby settlements can stay. People had to pay for animals that went astray simply because they were held responsible for where their animals go. Rania said that in the years she's been going there, she's seen the number of those animals keep decreasing because people have to keep leaving their farms to find better work. Every time we go to one of those herding communities, we see less sheep. It's simple, but those people used to rely on land that now they have no access to. The thing is, the jobs are in the settlements that displace them. So what's happening is that they're selling their sheep and the younger ones end up working in settlements that were built on their original grazing land. What happens to these people, Rania says, depends on how the annexation is implemented. The Israeli prime minister said that those Palestinians will end up being in enclaves. Those people are not going to be citizens. They're going to be subjects. Now, what that means, it's up to the Israeli government to define. But what we're looking at is either a South Africa kind of scenario where people live in enclaves or a situation whereby their lives are made so difficult that they're either pushed out of their villages and towns, like transferred, or even worse, evicted. The Jordan Valley is the biggest area up for annexation. But there are others that could be included, too as Gershom explains. 
some of the settlements are concentrated together in fairly large groupings, what are referred to inside of Israel as the settlement blocks. And there is a strong political trend in Israel that says in any peace agreement, Israel would hold on to them. So the advocates say, so we might as well annex them now and make them part of the state of Israel now. I would underline two things here. Defining exactly what's in the settlement blocks is not a point of agreement. People talk of them constantly, but there's no agreed definition of what the settlement blocks are or what's inside of them. And there certainly has been no agreement in any of the periods of serious negotiations with the Palestinians that Israel would, in fact, keep them. Gershom also told me he thinks many Israelis literally don't know where the border between Israel and the West Bank is. You can find it on Google Maps if you pay attention, but it's just a gray dotted line. The idea is really to create a fate accompli, to, to state in advance, we're not giving this up. So there is a huge settler population, but not everyone moving to these settlements has the same motivation. So talk to me about some of the reasons Israelis have moved to settlements. You know, I, I would basically say you divide this into two categories, the ideological and what's called quality of life. Gershom says when it comes to settlers, there really is something of a silent majority. People who were motivated to go there not to stake a claim to the land, but because it's cheap. The government was doing it for political ideological reasons, but it used the economic incentive to draw people there who weren't necessarily coming for that reason. You know, they said a three-room apartment in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv is too expensive and I can't afford it. And here the government is offering me a single-family home in one of these settlements, so I'll go for it. Gershom says the single-family home came to Israel for many people through the settlements. And that was built into the system by every Israeli government over the decades. I want to stress here, the individual settler may not see all of the incentives. A lot of these things are sort of woven into the fabric of life in such a way that when I've, as a journalist, interviewed settlers, they very often say, we're not, we're not getting any incentives. Nobody's paying us to be here. But the things are not necessarily on the surface. I, the, the apartment is cheaper, but that's not necessarily because you're getting, you know, a pile of money in your hand from the government. I mean, there's all sorts of things the individual settler may not see. And the other thing is somebody who's not particularly deeply political in their nature can move to a settlement and then be very committed to Israel keeping it because now that's their home, that's their community. So trying to cleanly divide all of the settlers into one of these categories or the other is difficult. You have this poetic, but for some people, slightly tragic line in your book, The Accidental Empire. Stalemate was the soil in which settlements grew. Can you tell me more about that line and what you mean? Yeah. Had there been a final status agreement, then the status of the land would have been decided and Israel building settlements in land that was under military occupation would have stopped. But no agreement has ever been reached. There's always been a very significant portion of the Israeli population that opposed settlement. Some of the Israeli population has been out in the streets, protesting ahead of the July 1st deadline. This is Netanyahu creating an apartheid system. Officially, it will not be able to be said in the future that Israel is a democracy. We're losing all our friends if we do it. We're losing all of our influence. 
The difference was the settlers built and the opponents opposed. <laughs> so the stalemate situation allowed them to continue building and gave a huge political advantage to the advocates of settlement. Gershom also explained that some of the peace negotiations actually further entrenched the settlements. For example, the Oslo Accords back in the 1990s. Among other things, the agreement created the Palestinian Authority that now governs the West Bank. The thing is, it was only supposed to be an interim agreement. And the settlements actually grew indirectly as a result of the Oslo Accord. Now, that might not have been so consequential, but like the occupation itself, the interim status of the Oslo Accords has become permanently temporary (laughs) or temporarily permanent. The Palestinian Authority is also a victim of that temporary permanence. The annexation plans have not involved Palestinian input. And so Rania says the last bit of leverage they have left is the agreements they've signed. This is from the end of May. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas says Palestine will not be bound by agreements with Israel and the U.S. The Palestine Liberation Organization and the State of Palestine are not bound to, as of today, all the agreements and understandings with the American and Israeli governments, including the security ones. Palestinian uh, officials don't want the PA to end up as a municipality, like doing the administrative things whereby they they collect garbage and clean the roads. What they want is to remind Israel what occupation means. They don't want Israel to benefit from occupation without paying the costs and being responsible for the occupied population as per international law. We have an economy on the verge of collapse at this point. Still, Palestinian officials are standing their ground and saying, if that's what it takes for Israel to realize that the PA is not here to carry the burden, they're willing to pay the price. In your view, from your reporting you've been doing on this and all of the preparation you're doing for something that may or may not happen in a few days, why do you think this is happening now? Trump. It doesn't take a a genius to tell you that there's a huge coordination between Netanyahu and Trump at unprecedented levels. Both men believe that what they can get away with now, they might not get away with in the future. Gershom put it even more bluntly. Trump didn't just allow Israel to take this possible drastic step. He removed obstacles that the Israeli prime minister wasn't necessarily eager to have taken away. The policy of American administrations over the last 20 or more years has been to favor a two-state outcome. Donald Trump came in as president with his crew and sort of took a wrecking ball to all that. So for somebody like Netanyahu, who wanted to have his cake and eat it too, to continue to expand the settlements without causing a major international reaction. This was a comfortable situation. When the hardliners said, why don't you annex the territory? You could say, well, the Americans won't let us. You know, we're, we're dependent on the Americans. And all of a sudden, the babysitter in Washington said, no, you can do whatever you want. You know, you want to have a big party and get drunk? You can do that. So I, I think that a major part of the context for what's going on here is the policy chaos in, in Washington. Meanwhile, 
Gershom says there's been a whole chorus of Israeli former security and ex-government officials coming out against annexation. The security officials who oppose annexation say that it could set off renewed violent conflict within the West Bank itself, that Palestinian opposition could escalate and turn violent, and that it will deeply harm Israel's relations with neighboring countries and with the Arab world in general, and that all of that is immensely damaging and that there's no benefit from it, that this big declaration, this striking policy would be a a major security risk. Irania, that immensely damaging prospect, doesn't feel that different. Even with the Palestinians ending agreements, even with 30% of the West Bank potentially becoming part of Israel, the change could be huge. But it also doesn't feel that new. And even though what happens after July 1st isn't clear, people are already living that contradiction. You don't only have to evaluate what changes in people's lives on the ground. It's also about something bigger than that. It's about the Palestinian national project as a whole. If they annexed parts of the West Bank, it means the end of the two-state solution, which Palestinians already look at as a compromise. So what's happening is not the end of a process as much as it is the beginning of a new one. It's not like after it's khalas, it's the the end of story. There will always be something else. And as naive as that might be, I have faith in the Palestinian people because whoever lived throughout these conditions for 50 years, I would put my money that most people are likely to stay put. They've got nowhere else to go. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilbe, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Biral. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Bashir is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs> 